figuring out a podcast where we discuss all things related to relationships intimacy identity power dynamics and more my name is kanako my name is michaela my name is sophia and my name is newell and you're listening to figuring out nuanced proximities to power as we start every podcast we just want to say that we're grateful for all of our listeners who continue to listen each and every week um, and we're excited to dig into this conversation yeah so i think this topic kind of stemmed out of a conversation that us four were having thinking about how oftentimes when we think about proximities to power we kind of can get stuck in categories of differentiating like race and class and gender and kind of leaving it at that or not um, delving a little bit deeper into what that really means and how within these kind of divisions how they're not necessarily divided but very interconnected as well as how kind of we can go beyond that in our conversations and kind of dig a little bit deeper. Um, So with that we're kind of thinking about some of the things that affect um, where we live, um, how this affects our school districts, and kind of opening that conversation up a little bit more as well. Yeah, so often I think that when we look at the history of just like the demographics of how neighborhoods were just shaped and the ways in which um, just ethnicities and race comes into play in terms of people's living um, areas and regions, um, a lot of this for black and brown populations stemmed from housing discrimination, um, which it was very prominent in 1935 to 1939, where redlining was a practice of when certain areas in the U.S., certain cities were marked um, in red as hazardous. And this was kind of a signal to mortgage lenders to not provide loans or allow Black and brown people to uh, be able to purchase homes, but also to assign the homes that they did own to a very like, low market value and that a lot of people did not want to move into those areas as well. Um, and so this effectively like isolated people that lived in those areas. And so they suffered a lot of uh, low levels of investment. And this wasn't necessarily just black populations, but this was generally just immigrants, a lot of um, Asian immigrants, a lot of uh, Jewish people, um, and other people that were listed as undesirable in that uh, time period. Okay, yes. So I took a class um, about two semesters ago where we actually had an, an activity that was allowed us to basically go online and look up different like cities and like look up basically how were they ranked um in the 30s and then how are they ranked now in terms of like how their value is seen and so a lot of like the way how the things were marked were very much like blue is like very desirable very you know high value a lot of white people live there a lot of upper class people live there um and then it goes from blue yellow to red um and what was very prominent in this is noticing that a lot of the cities and areas that were redlined in the past still suffer from those sort of uh, experiences of having lower investment and things like that. And so when we look at just the ways in which each of us grew up or how schools are set up and how education is set up, we see that like those same systems are still in place and that people have 
these sort of like ethnic enclaves where a lot of people of a certain race live in the same area because of the ways how either housing discrimination played out or immigration patterns played out, um, et cetera. And so I think that like that shapes a lot of people's like childhood and upbringing. Um, I can say, speak for myself when I say that, like I didn't realize like how much of it anomaly it is to be like a person of color, a black person, and to live in like a neighborhood that has mostly immigrants and like have homeowners that are not white. Um, and I think that like that also shaped a lot of like the people that I went to school with growing up and like that I was around a lot of other immigrants, that I was around a lot of South Asian immigrants, a lot of African immigrants, Black Americans. Um, and I think that like those also shaped the resources that were given to those schools as well because of the segregation that was seen. Yeah, kind of pulling on that point of like schooling and education a little bit, the like nerdy education student in me is just like hearing a lot of things about like, also I think how when we think about both like our history and our present schooling systems, we kind of don't really have those conversations about just like how segregated they are, how like, I'm also thinking historically, like when we talk about school segregation, we kind of talk about it as like, something that happened in the south didn't happen in the north and like this is true it happened in the south um like by law but like i think also like you know yeah when we think of like these images of like the little rock nine in arkansas we think about protesting protesting outside the school as like ruby bridges walks in and these are really important and like true and like horrifying stories of like what happened and all the protests etc but also kind of like reeling back in, I didn't really know for a super long time just like how much opposition there was to like school desegregation in, in the North as well, because like it was there and like it wasn't necessarily like put into place by law, but you have schools where everyone is white, that's a segregated school. Um, and so like after Brown v. Board, like there was just so much white resistance in the North as well to desegregate, desegregate properly. And like what ended up happening was that a lot of students would like or a lot of communities would rely on like token desegregation. So, you know, a couple of students here and there, but like there was no actual like integration, I think would be the way to put it. Like so there was busing and like all, there was like all these kind of policies that were put into place. But a lot of times what ended up happening was that students of colors were the ones who were bused into white schools and then white students would just leave the schools. And then that was it. And like, or like if there was a couple white students who happened to be bused into predominantly like black or brown schools, they would leave the school because that is white flight. And like, that's what would end up happening. So then you'd kind of end up with these schools that were still essentially segregated. Um, but also thinking about how like, that's like now too, <laughs> like there's these like really, like we live in a segregated schooling system. And like in New York, I know yeah, New York is the most segregated state for Black students. And in 2018, in New York City, 90% of Black students attended predominantly non-white schools. And like, that's like liberal, quote unquote, New York City, you know? And so it's just like thinking about how, kind of incorporating that dynamic of how all this like, these kind of historical details that we assume to be historical and kind of leave in the past still really inform our present. And I'm also thinking about how like, 
within our education systems, like even within white schools, there's white privilege. Um, so, or like, especially within white schools, but I mean like even when you have like integrated quote unquote schools, like there's still tracking systems. So we ask questions of who's in the upper level courses. There are these disciplinary practices and we have to ask questions of who gets disciplined and how, because it's predominantly not white students, predominantly black students who are disciplined like unfairly and then also like whose histories are we learning because at the end of the day like you might have a quote-unquote integrated school but you're learning white history probably so it's kind of like I'm thinking about all these nuances of like how within systems that we consider that are so essential to our day-to-day life like what neighborhoods we live in what schools we go to just like how much is at play and how we kind of like oftentimes we'll talk about like oh like I went to a mix, like an integrated school. I went to predominantly like white school. I went to predominantly Asian school. I went to predominantly black school. And then kind of just like leave it there and like not really dig so much into the nitty gritty. Um, so that was kind of something that was on my mind. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all that information. Um, definitely making me think about how I conceptualize like my own schooling. Um, and especially when you're talking about like, you know, like predominantly white institutions, thinking a lot about like, Vassar um, and the specific histories of like who's attending Vassar and who is not um, and I think a lot about um, I think on one hand being a student of color on this campus is like a pretty difficult and like often isolating experience I think it's like yeah I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone um, and I know that everyone's experiences are different um, but I think that that tends to be like a a common theme that I hear across like a lot of people of color here Um, and also for myself like growing up in a predominantly white area and I think like having always attended predominantly white institutions and schools um, yeah like that can be really traumatizing Um, but I think also at the same time balancing that with what kinds of privileges are associated with like that proximity to whiteness so like I think for myself so much of the reasons that the spaces that I've existed within have been predominantly white are because of like my class privilege Um, and also I think partially because I grew up in a rural area but I think that you know still class plays such a big role in that and then Um, I was looking a little bit into like the differences in funding between uh, historically black colleges and universities and PWIs Um, and HBCUs are more reliant on federal and state funding because they get less like support from private resources so like endowments grants like private gifts um, alumni donations things like that Um, and so HBCUs are already at a a disadvantage in terms of like the channels of funding that they're getting money from and then federal funding is often so precarious um, and is often you know being reduced when whenever people yeah I think we've all had like heard similar stories of like funding getting cut um, for a variety of programs and just thinking about the balance between like being able to attend a college that's not predominantly white and having that source of like community, having more 
resources that are tailored to like students particular uh, students uh, like black students needs versus like being at a predominantly white institution not having that support but also having like more federal fund or not not even federal but like just having more access to money and like having more access to resources um yeah it just feels like people get stuck between a rock and a hard place and it's like yeah it's like it's not like anyone's like winning um nobody's winning but i think i oftentimes at least for myself i think that that's like a complexity that i want to be more attentive to because i think a lot of the times i just get stuck on like oh like it sucks being here like you know there's so many white people but um yeah i think being honest with myself about like what privileges that also gives me and like how i can be using that um in generative ways i think is something i think about a lot I think to go off of what um, Kanako and Sophia touched on with like segregation, I think it's also important to bring up how like even in like schools that do happen to be diverse, there can be segregation in like honors and AP classes with like most of the students um, in AP and like upper level classes being white, which is like I think a really interesting thing to digest. but another like kind of nuanced proximities that I've heard I heard like in transitions was like this idea of like doubly disadvantaged versus privileged poor. And like privileged poor would just basically be like a, a student of color who um, went to like a prep school or boarding school and they kind of know how to like navigate white spaces and also they have they've had like privilege in being at a predominantly white school that's like elite because you know networking and things of that nature where it's like doubly disadvantaged students usually go to um, public high schools that are undersourced and like segregated and I thought about basically how that has affected like students that come to Vassar like I know when I came to Vassar transitions was like a really big thing for me but for other like low income students like I would be talking about transitions and they didn't need transitions because they went to prep schools and boarding schools. And also just thinking about how like, how like that proximity to whiteness does help you, um, I guess in the future and knowing how to navigate and how like, I guess like institutions don't really, even though they want more students of color and like lower income students to be a part of like the spaces, they don't really put any other additional like tools for students that wouldn't feel more comfortable being in the space like this to succeed. Yeah, I think that's a really relevant point. And thank you for sharing that anecdote, Michaela. Because it also reminds me of like, I was having this conversation with my friends and I feel like I've had it a few times for like, I think especially when it comes to like socioeconomic condition of Vassar, like there's this weird assumption, I think that the school and like institutions make, but Vassar in particular, where it's like, okay, like, you know what? Yeah, there's like, everyone comes here from different varying degrees of life but we all come here and then everyone's on the same meal plan everyone's on housing everyone goes to the same classes everyone has the same cdo because we're like a small school and i think then like our conversation so often gets cut off at that it's like oh well you know like yeah sure like everyone comes from a different background but we all eat the same meals in the same dining hall with the same swipes 
And like, that's just so not it and so oversimplified, but I really feel like Vassar has that idea. But then you think about it and even just like thinking about like my friends who like struggled the most transitioning to college, like who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about my friends who like didn't go to predominantly white schools and who are like, you know, like it's just all of these factors. And I feel like so often they kind of just get like glossed over in this like weird bubble assumption that we have here. Yeah, and like adding on to what you've said, um, I know one place that I feel like Vassar lacks in that is like courses. Um, I know like a lot of first years, like they'll think like, oh, I took AP classes. So like I should just jump to this class. But I, I think professors don't understand that although like a student has taken an AP course, they probably did not have a really good teacher. They probably did not ever go into an actual professional like lab before they came here. And I feel like a lot of the like STEM intro courses at Vassar, they don't put a lot of care in because it's like a weed out class, but they don't know like a lot of these students don't have prior information to actually fall back on. Like this is their fir first exposure. So I feel, I feel like Vassar should do better with that. Yeah, I actually have an experience with that. Um, in my intro chem class that I took, I was like, yeah, I took AP Chem. Okay, great. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Took the first exam, did not do well on it. And instead of my professor being someone that was like, okay, like, let's talk about it. Come to office hours. We can work on it. Like, let's see what we went wrong, et cetera, et cetera. He was like, okay, well, we're actually going to walk across the street. We're going to go to the bridge and we're going to sign you up and you're going to be in this other guy's class because I'm not going to teach you anymore. And he brought in an ad drop form and put me in the man's office and like literally made me cross over and add and drop the class like right at that moment he did not ask me what i wanted to do he did not offer to help me it was just like okay well here i am i am signing you over to this other man and he's going to become a history teacher and that's the support that i got from vassar meanwhile i'm actually just like in shock that is horrible I think that that's just such like a jarring experience for a first year to have, like for you to be in your first intro class in STEM and like come in, you know, already underrepresented in the STEM field. And then to have like those experiences with two white men, it just was not a great start to my college career. Yeah, I think something that you while your story is is making me think of is also like I feel like a lot of schools like Vassar the selling point is like oh like it's so small like you'll be able to develop relationships with your faculty and like you know you'll have so much support from like the adults here um and I just think that like depending on what field you go into I think in general but like there are certain fields where like I think it feels really salient like that kind of relationship building is just like not accessible to all people in equal ways um like Niwa you were saying like certain students like are very underrepresented in STEM and that like is reflected in the people who work there so then it's like you yeah like there's such a power dynamic between like not only is it like a professor and a student but it's also like you know race gender class background and I think that that can make it really challenging and I feel like people don't really think about it that much but I think like even for myself like I 
take a lot of humanities classes and have been fortunate enough to have a lot of professors of color, um, like femme professors of color. But I also think about like the disproportionate amounts of like emotional labor that those femme professors of color probably have to do for these students because I think that um, like white students still feel comfortable approaching these professors and these professors are some of the only student uh some of the only professors that like students of color might feel comfortable approaching so they have to do like this double duty um and and i think for myself too like being a non-black person of color i think about like oh like who are the people that like i feel drawn to like connect with and like in what ways I think because it's like it's not like an impossibility for me to like connect with other faculty members um but there are certain faculty members that I feel like more or less drawn to um and I think like yeah I'm just very aware of that the fact that like any relationship I form is like time and energy that like I'm taking from a professor and also that like yeah I don't want to use like a competitive model but like that this person has limited time and energy and there are other students who like might be benefiting more from like the time and energy that I'm taking up but then like I just sometimes I see all these white people who like don't, just don't give a care you know they're just like they're they're always at their office hours you know taking up the fun professor of colors time and energy every day and I'm just like choices are being made I don't know <laughs> topic but but thinking about like interpersonal relationships and relationship building had me thinking about like um, different forms of like sociality and relationship building. Um, and specifically, I think I've been thinking a lot about like neurodivergence recently um, and like disability studies um, for the place. But like the topic of professors also has me thinking about like the stereotype of like the kind of like weird like goofy um typically like cis white male stem professor um where it's like oh you know like you know how like steve is like that's just how he is and like you don't know this that there's not like a real steve i'm just using a name <laughs> um, but kind of like the like scientist like archetype i guess um and so I guess those are kind of two different threads, but I've been thinking a lot about like, since this topic is nuanced proximities to power, like bringing in other dimensions of identity into the conversation. Um, because I think like, okay, I guess my point is twofold. I think on one hand, thinking about neurodivergence and the ways that so much of like what Vassar promises its students is premised on this ability to create connections both like with your peers and with professors and how that is predicated on certain normative forms of socializing that like aren't accessible or realistic for everyone and thinking about like how that in and of itself is deeply harmful um and how I think there are there are really lovely people in like the accommodations office and as a whole I think Vassar isn't great about accommodations <laughs> in any sense of the word um and then I think on the other hand thinking about like 
who is allowed to break these conventions and norms and still get away with it or like get away with it is maybe not the right word but like i think that there are sanctions for not conforming to these like social standards depending on who you are and i think that those things are way more severe for people who hold marginalized identities yeah that also reminded me about like this is kind of a small point but like how at least in a lot of my classes i'm not sure if this is the same for some classes maybe not but um in like my humanities and like arts classes a lot of like what 25 percent of your grade is participation like that that's a big chunk and not that is not made for everyone and it's so much just like a, oh like i feel like i've heard professors kind of jokingly say like oh if i don't know who you are then you know there's your participation grade kind of down the drain and how just like insanely inaccessible that is and like yeah that was just kind of something that came to my attention but we talk about it as in like the vassar classroom so perfect everyone's chatting everyone is like connecting and all these things but like and 20 participation is really important for that but like what does that mean to students who like that is not a reality for or what does that even mean for just students that just think they have the whole world in their hands and just have a book to say and they just don't let you get a word in like and which gets me very frustrated also because in certain departments like the africana department for example classes are discussing racial topics and so i think that in some instances that like voices of color should be like how do you like uplifted in those spaces but because of the dynamic of our school those classes are often predominantly white and i think that like yeah some people just talk a lot and just take up a lot of space and how can you participate if people just think that they're they're right and they just think that they have a a whole essay to say in class okay this is kind of on the topic of like classes and professors but i do think there's this underlying like notion that like you should be able to advocate for yourself at this school and like i feel like that's kind of unfair because although resources are here not everyone knows how to navigate them and then also like i feel like people don't put in mind that even if you are trying to navigate those resources there are certain people here that or staff here professors here that might not think that you fit in those spaces so the advice that they give you is not going to be helpful and then what is in place for students to navigate that when they're not given the good like good advice yeah and this is kind of yeah i'm also thinking about like i don't know i maybe this I think this is something in like the Asian community especially because I can speak to that. Like self-advocacy is not a thing. <laughs> like you do not do that. And I'm sure this can apply to like other groups as well, but like you don't you don't talk to your like elders like that or people you respect. Like that's not how that works. And like I think that's like something that like a western education has kind of nailed through me a little bit, but like I think it's 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 a lot easier for like white people who have kind of been taught these skills from a younger age than other groups and sometimes we kind of leave that out of the convo too yeah and i think also like depending on your background like 
I don't like speak to my parents in English. Like I feel like I just have such little experience even like talking to adults in English.、Um, and I'm always like, I don't know what to say. Like I don't know how to speak to you. Like I don't want to come across as disrespectful. And I think that it's just like a very, yeah, it's a contentious relationship. Even if the other person has like the best of intentions, I think it always feels so fraught in ways that like, yeah, in ways that other people don't. Or even like, this is such a small thing, but like calling adults by their first names makes me so uncomfortable because that's not like what I what I would ever do.、Um, but when people are like, oh yeah, like just call me like you know by my first name, and I'm like. Um, I don't know how to tell you this, but like I simply can't do that. <laughs> and then I think, kind of adding on to that, in terms of advocating, I think that it's also a lot easier when there are people, well, like when you know there are people on this campus who will advocate for you, and like who has those connections, and like who. You know, is like quote unquote like liked enough by you know the the authorities that they come into contact with that they have those people. I think is a really important question.、Um, yeah, I guess like speaking、um, also to like the Asian community or like the Asian American community.、Um, a lot of like the I guess like、um, a lot of the extracurricular work that I'm involved with is like. Trying to get like an Asian American Studies department onto campus because we don't have one, but it's like there's no professors here who are. Or now there is. Shout out to Professor Chin. I'm in love with you.、Um, but you know, there's like when there's so there's like American Studies and there's Asian Studies, and like we've been pulling support from those spaces. But I think it's like. When there's not adults who are like invested personally in in that work,、um, whereas I think like you know if you wanted more like Africana studies classes, which like is like super valid and real, there are at least like professors who are also probably invested in having more like Africana studies classes. I think it's just like. It's hard to find a foothold, and like there's a lot of people who say that they want to help you, but like people are busy and like they're doing their own things. But I think it's just hard,、um, and I think it also speaks to like what Vassar thinks is important, like the coursework that's offered. Like there's so many gaps in Vassar's coursework,、um, and I think that the Underdevelopment of like Asian American studies is very reflective of Vassar's like black-white binary view of thinking about race,、um, and that's not like just Vassar, but I think that like other comparable institutions do have like more fleshed-out programs,、um, or like you know this complete lack of like disability studies offerings,、um, very few like. Trans courses or like gender courses that aren't just about like women,、um, even like, yeah, I think it's it's interesting that like queer studies is like a correlate under women's studies. Like, there's so many hierarchies to like what people think is important, or like、uh, Native American studies also is only a correlate. Like, 
it, yeah, I think it's very telling like what programs are really well established and which aren't. Like I'm a psych major and like the psych major here at Vassar is like super popular. And there's one professor of color in the psych department. And like, we don't have any course offerings that are about like psychology and race or like even like psychology and like sexuality. Like there's just so few course offerings. Um, and I think it, it definitely points to like what is deemed important enough to be taught or like to study. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, I know uh, one of my, I'm not calling her out too much, but one of my friends uh, was taking Arabic at Vassar and most languages they offer four years of it and Arabic they offer three years of it. Um, and so she was trying to kind of like get Vassar to offer a fourth year of Arabic, mostly because like, as many languages are very complex, you cannot become fluent in three years. It's just a fact of the matter. And so she like got the Africana studies department involved and like tried to go through all these loops, but it didn't seem like, I wanna say like every like four or five years, some Arabic student had gone through the same exact process and found the same exact roadblocks and just nothing. And then I'm thinking about like, you know, me, like I've been taking Japanese Advassar and if I wanted to, I could take like six or seven years of, Jap of Japanese Advassar alone. And I also think that speaks to who's taking Japanese. Um, you know, a, a lot of students from different backgrounds, oftentimes people who like anime and manga and may happen to be white. Um, whereas like, you know, who's taking Arabic. And I think it's kind of a relevant discussion of just, I never even thought about like the, the privilege in being able to take four years of a language. Um, and that was kind of really saddening and humbling and a lot intense. I know I've been talking a lot, so I will stop after this point, but I think it's, yeah, like the fact that we have an Asian studies department and then we have a Chaja department and the majority of Asian studies is already so East Asian. Like it's like China, Japan, a, a sprinkle of Korea, and then like maybe one course on like South Asia, maybe, um, I think is something that I think about a lot as like an East Asian person. But I think that was amazing. And I think that you guys brought up very important points. Um, specifically Kanako and talking about like how I've never ever thought about like the fact that we don't have a disability studies program and that we don't and that queer studies is under women's studies like all of these different like courses that people are searching for that are not available and like all of the work that has to be done in order to possibly get a course or possibly get a correlate or you know nonetheless a major or get you know four years of a language all of these other things um, so I think these are really important things to bring up that I think everyone is not already um, wondering or like probing of the institution. Yeah, I think um, as much as we talk about intersectionality here at Vassar, and like I honestly I'm including myself in this as well, like I feel like even I like still have an internalized like hierarchy of oppressions. Like when I think about something, like I think for myself, like I think about race first. And I think that like, it's it's a really like, I, 
think I'm still trying to work out for myself, like work through for myself, like where that comes from and like what the implications are and like when that maybe is or isn't generative. Um, I I think like even the mantra of like, oh, like center like black women's voices, I think is like very reductive to like all the other like facets of identity that like exist. Um, and like trying to say like oh like this single axis i don't know like it's hard because it's all related but it's also like oh like what about like trans black women or like what about you know like disabled black women like there's so many other things to consider and like race and gender and like sexuality and class and like disability are all interconnected with each other so like that's part of what makes it hard um but i think that for myself like there are certain things that like yeah I guess like I'm not this isn't me saying that this is how it should be or that like this is right I think this is just me trying to be honest with myself about like how I conceptualize things like there are still things that like immediately come to mind when I think about power and there are things that like I am less attentive to when I think about power um and thinking about yeah I don't know I think it's just like it feels sticky and I think it's like it's like this two-directional or like multi-directional problem where it's like you know something like queer studies or like women's studies is so often like predominantly white like it doesn't really talk about race um And then like courses on like Africana studies or like in like those other fields, like maybe don't always talk about like disability or don't always like go super in depth into things like, yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense, but but I think it's just something that I think about with like also how siloed Vassar's courses are. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll be canceled tomorrow. <laughs> no, Other I people think, have thoughts. No, I think you're totally right, Kanako. Like, there's a very like monolithic view of like what we think of when we think of people. Um, I think it's very important to, you know, acknowledge intersectionality. But I think there are some intersections that are centered more than others. So I think it's important that you brought that up. I think that comes up a lot with like class privilege um predominantly because i think that like there's just so many ways that like people have class privilege that we don't talk about like i think that like in a lot of courses it's always framed as like oh like yes and the affluent person oh and the like upper like we just frame it as like class privilege as like being super duper 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 wealthy when like it's very like particular to the person. And I think that like going back to many, many episodes ago and thinking about like mutual aid and thinking about um, what uh, VPEWR was doing with the uh, bingo and like mutual aid and thinking about like simple things of like, oh, like, do you own a home? Do you like have the luxury of like not having loans? Like, like just different things of like, conceptualizing class privilege in ways that like 
make it more tangible for people to understand like where they stand in that privilege and like understanding that like class privilege is not does not always look in the way that we think it is you know um I mean, I think, Panako, you talked about, like, the whole black and white thing. I mean, thinking about it in, like, a different way, I feel like a lot of times, like, people don't look at, like, the gray area. It's, like, both ex- it's like both extremes. So I think it's very valuable to kind of acknowledge the gray area and basically what Newell just said. So, yeah. Yeah, this is kind of like a little nuance that's been sitting in my head for a little bit, so maybe I'll voice it and see where that thought takes me but um I also feel like I've been thinking a lot about like how we very often just like talk about the two like like together of like black and brown folks and I've been thinking a lot about brown um because I am brown but I am very light like relatively and so I've been thinking about like what that means like when we say brown like who are we talking about do we do we genuinely mean brown or are we talking about like brown latinx folk like who like who are we talking about when we talk about that because i think when we have this monolith so many times you can have solidarity of course you can also have people who look like me who are quite fair people who are fairer than me and then you also have people who are like quite like you know we were talking about colors from last week like quite dark skin and so just like i've been thinking about that one a little bit not sure where i'm going with that but that's been swimming in my head i think all of it is relative, you know? I think that like, yeah, you and you calling yourself brown and also fair, like, are is just in comparison, because you, in, the way that you said it just now, you are saying in relative to people that are darker. And however, in the way that you're perceived in compared to whiteness, like th- that would be perceived as brown, you know? Um, but then I also think that like, because race is just constructed in, a way that we don't understand. I think like brown can mean so many things. And I think that like, literally, if you call yourself brown, then guess what? That's the category that you reside in and who's can tell you different. Um, But I I feel like when I think about it, I I generally do think about um, brown Latinx folks because there is like ambiguity in terms of like, what is race because they aren't necessarily white or not necessarily black but have yeah there is like this sort of like racial ambiguity but like no ethnicity um but yeah and to go back to our previous discussion I think that like something that like we will all have to or like contend with is the fact that like we are like deep within and proximal to like the power that like faster has given us and the power that like being at this institution has now framed us in a way and like now going out into the world i think it's go- it's a completely different ball game. It's, a- it's a completely different ball game now because that we have come from like this institution of power and of money and had these networking experiences and all of these other things that like yeah there is inherent privilege in that and like contending with that and the intersectionalities of our identities also like means coming to terms with the fact that like 
the playing fields are are not level. Yeah, that's something that I find very hard to grapple with, especially like with the thing of like, you know, like how they say like a lot of bachelor students like go to the city and gentrify it. I'm like, you know, like that's something that I grapple with. I'm like gentrification, you know, and like, I mean, obviously I'm low income now, but like obviously thinking about my future, I don't plan to be low income in the future. So it's also like grappling with how like, how how being in like instances of like privilege and elitism is going to affect me going forward. Yeah, I really appreciate you raising that point, Newell, because I and Michaela, because I feel like those are both things that I think about so much and like, yeah, and I think like for myself, like coming from a middle class background and then like going to this institution to probably experience like some sort of upward mobility, I think it's really important to think about. I mean, just thinking about that downward mobility, I'm like thinking of like the upward mobility for like POC who are low income, who then like go up. I also like, I think it's very complicated because there, I feel like there is an expectation that if you are low income and you go up, you're supposed to help your family around you. And that's something that I feel like if you're already like kind of have money, that's something that you don't really have to worry about. And so then like, how also does that affect that person who also has to become a caregiver for everyone in their family just because they did do that upward mobility? I feel like that is like a proximity to power, not having to actually, you know, take care of the rest of your family. Um, Yeah, Michaela, I think that's a really great point. I think it also really speaks to the fact that like, we put the care of our community on our communities and it's it's just so ridiculous is what it is because when you put it on our community like okay like which com- which communities do you have people who have that upper mobility and like at what rates like so then does that mean that those communities like it's on them no it's ridiculous we all know that's ridiculous but you're right it's like there is that such strong narrative of like oh well okay well this person does it and then they'll help everyone else and then that'll that'll solve it and like you know that's your job and that's responsibility and then done like right there end of story and yeah that just really reminded me of that yeah and it also feels so hard because like that for me like the solution is not though like oh like let's not provide care for like the people in our lives like i think it it just feels so hard because I think like even thinking about things like elder care is something that's been on my mind a lot recently for like various reasons but like thinking about how I think it's it's not super uncommon for like older folks in certain communities to be put into like community like community homes or like things like that whereas I think the narrative at least like in the communities that I'm a part of is like oh like you're supposed to take care of your family like you're like you're responsible for like your elders Um, yeah okay thank you so much for that point Kanako and I think that's also like that could be a really lovely note to end on in that I think we've had some really generative discourse and a great conversation on a lot of really different topics but all really related to digging deeper at the conversation of what power means what power looks like where does power show up in ways that are a little more complicated than we kind of can reduce them to oftentimes thinking about how systems um, are really really incorporated into our education and our neighborhoods and how that extends to Vassar and PWIs and 
HBCUs and all these really amazing conversations and things that I learned from today that I really appreciate hearing from you guys. And I think with that, we can continue to go off into the world. And thank you so much for listening and thinking with us about what power means and what privilege means and continuing this discourse on today as well.